Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. One of the benefits, at least to a preacher, of picking a book or a passage of Scripture, something like the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters, five, six, and seven, and going through it verse by verse by verse, it forces you to deal with verses that you never really understood. And I've come to two verses like that, and having studied it, it's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But we're in the passage where Jesus is letting the Jewish people, his hearers, know that they have broken some of God's commandments and probably didn't even know it. In other words, you know, in verses 21 and 22, he's saying, look, if you've been angry with a brother without cause, you've broken the sixth commandment. You've killed them with unjustified anger. And even worse, if you call them some names, you assassinate their character. You've broken the sixth commandment. And then he gives us the cure for that in verses 23 through 26, that we are to, as much as possible, to be reconciled to people, not just those in the church, but to everyone in our lives that we know. And he gives us the priority of reconciliation and the urgency of reconciliation. And then, verses 27 to 28, he says, Look, you guys have broken the seventh commandment, and you don't even realize it. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And then he talks about if, if a man looks on a woman to lust after her, that, that long, lingering look where he undresses her in, her in his eyes and in his mind, you've committed adultery in your heart already. And then he goes to verses 29 and 30, and like he did for the sixth commandment, he gives us the cure. If thy right eye offend thee, verse 29, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Yesterday, Uncle Joe asked me, what are you preaching on tomorrow? I read the verses. He says, so you're going to hand out daggers, huh? I said, no, I don't think that's what it means. Maybe plastic ones I'll hand out as a reminder of these verses. But what Jesus is giving us here in verses 29 and 30 are the preventative measures that we are to take to avoid lusting, and may I add to that, sin in general. And may I say it this way in one phrase. We are to deal drastically with sin in our lives. We are to deal drastically with lusting and with sin in general. Deal drastically with it. We are to remove the offending member of our body, as it were. Now, these two verses are two of the most startling verses in the Gospels. Of course, it's figurative language. Jesus is using, uh, I hope I pronounce this right, 
this correctly? Hyperbole, is that how you pronounce it? I have in my notes hyperbolic language. It's a phrase I found in the commentary. Jesus is using hyperbolic language that shows us how to be delivered from specifically the sin of lust, but as we extend it to all sin in general. What we must do to deal with sin. Now at first, the admonition does not seem to make any sense if the problem is where? In our heart. And so... We must view these statements as Jesus is showing us this first principle, how dangerous sin is to us, and the terrible nature of sin to us, and the importance of dealing drastically with sin in our lives. So he says, if your right eye offend thee, Now, this word offend means to cause you to sin. So if your right eye causes you to sin, if your right eye causes you to stumble, you're to pluck it out. Take that dagger that Uncle Joe wants me to hand out and gouge out our eyes, our our eye. Now, this word offend is a stronger word than being offended in our English language. Sometimes you'll hear Christians say, well, you offended me. You need to apologize. And in the biblical sense, that's not what the word offend means. In the biblical sense, the word does not mean I hurt somebody's feelings. I made them sad. I affected them emotionally in some way. That's not how the word offend is used. The word offend means... To cause to fall. It includes a moral aspect and, of course, responsibility behind it. The word itself, the Greek word, actually often referred to the bait stick that, was, that would spring a trap when an animal touched it. How many have ever set a rat trap? I know you've done mouse traps. They're nothing when they snap your finger. Mike, do you ever get snapped by the rat trap? You were careful. Uh, I was snapped by a rat trap, and man, it hurts. I have a trap that I set behind the barn when there's animals, rodents, making holes underneath my barn. I don't like that, so I have a trap specifically for that rascal. And I have a special device that I have to use to set the trap. And that bait stick, and you don't, you don't want to get hurt by this one. It will break your arm. The word refers to that little place on the rat trap or the mouse trap that you put the cheese. And if you hit that with the slightest little pressure, the trap goes off. And the animal, mouse, rat, whatever's burrowing under my barn, gets caught. In other words, it's talking about something that will entrap us, spiritually, morally, anything that causes us to sin. 
not about your feelings being hurt or my feelings being hurt. Now this next section that I'm going to talk about, the right hand, the right eye. Do we have anybody that's left-handed in here? Nobody's left-handed? Okay, I won't be offending anybody then. Are you, re- you left-handed? Okay. This is not saying that right-handed or left-handed people, one's better than the other. Okay, Scott, that's not what this is saying. Okay. So it says, if thy right eye offend thee, or if thy right hand offend thee, pluck it out, cut it off. This is how sin and how evil are accomplished externally. Now the right, in the terminology that Jesus is using, the right is one's better side. In Scott's case, it would be the left. It's his better side. Okay? It's the more honorable side, the more valuable side. For Scott, if he loses his left hand, he's got to learn how to write with his right hand. We lose our right hand, we've got to learn how to... Okay, you get the point. So it's got nothing to do with, you know, you right-handed people being better than Scott over here or Scott being better than right-handed people. In the Jewish terminology, the right was one's better side, the more honorable side, the valuable side, a person's best and precious faculties. They held the right hand or the right side, the right eye, to be more important than the left. In other words, the best vision and the best skill. The eye is so precious to us, and the hand, the right hand, the most useful. To lose an eye, for instance, for a laborer, a laboring man, wouldn't be that much for him. I mean, it's difficult, but if he lost his right hand, that would be disastrous. A warrior, however, if he lost his right eye, that would be devastating. I mean, you know, for those of us who are right-handed, when we go to shoot, what eye do we close? Usually the left eye. We sight using our right eye. So nothing is implied about the left side or it's less or more valuable, uh, how valuable it is, or vulnerability. The right is chosen in this use of figurative language to heighten the action of cutting off or plucking out the best part or side of man. The right eye pluck it out, gouge it out, discard it. The eye is chosen because it is the one that looks and lusts, and it's the most precious to us. The right hand, amputate your hand and discard it. Some think that the hand is chosen because the Jewish people thought of adultery as some kind of theft. It is chosen because most people regard the right hand as indispensable. I have a shirt that I have to put cufflinks on sometimes. The right, you know, putting it on my left hand is pretty easy. I go to put that cufflink on my right hand, and man, I have some real problems. So the right hand is chosen because, you know, it's the most precious to us. It is indispensable. Now, I don't think that we're to assign specific functions to the eye or the hand. The figurative language or the hyperbolic language is being used is showing us how drastically... We are to deal with sin. 
and the lengths that we are to go to avoid being trapped in it, to avoid it being willing, that we are to be willing to get rid of the most precious thing that we possess, the right eye or the right hand. And notice what Jesus says here. Thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and that thy whole body should be cast into hell. He says the same thing about the right hand. So Jesus basically states that it is more advantageous to lose one member than to have the whole body cast into hell. Seems pretty simple, right? In other words, it's better to than for this to happen. It's better to cut out the eye, cut off the hand, than for the whole body to be cast into hell. I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice the importance that Jesus places on the destiny of people. The destiny of people. And it is not wrong to focus on eternity. It's not wrong at all. Jesus is showing us something here, and he's showing us how important life beyond the grave is. It is only in this life that we can prepare for eternity. Only in this life can you prepare for eternity. And so the thought here is this. It is better to experience the pain and the suffering associated with gouging out an eye or amputating a hand than to end up in hell. Getting rid of an eye, getting rid of a hand is temporary pain and temporary suffering compared to the eternality of being cast into hell. It is better to deal drastically with sin and avoid it than to be cast into hell. And we can safely say that Jesus is saying this. Give up whatever is necessary to avoid hell. Give up whatever is necessary to avoid hell. In other words, he's basically saying this, in, and we know the Sermon on the Mount is, is, is giving us a two-pronged purpose here. Remember that? This is how you get into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is saying, you need to give up even your right eye and your right hand, if that were possible, to avoid hell. Put your soul and your destiny before all else. Prepare yourself for eternity. Does not the rest of the Bible say that? For whosoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whosoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now to show you that I haven't misread into this. Here are some commentators' quotes. Bruner said, it is better to go limping into heaven than leaping into hell. Another commentator said, it is better to go maimed into heaven than whole into hell. 
Another said, it is better to deal drastically with sin and go to heaven than to enjoy sin and suffer in hell for that sin. It is better to cut sin out of your life than to die in your sin and be cast into hell. And the point that I think Jesus is making, and I've stated here, is that the present is not as important as eternity. Any pain and suffering we go through in this life is nothing compared to eternity. Enjoying sin and keeping it in your life while living on this earth will eventually send that person to hell. And of course, he uses the word perish, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not thy whole body should be cast into hell. Of course, the word perish is mean, means to be destroyed in hell or to be sent alive or sent into hell. It doesn't mean that, there, that hell will destroy the person and there is no conscious existence after that. But for the, the person who ends up in hell, he's no longer usable for the purpose for which God created him. Hence, he's destroyed in hell. He perishes in hell. To be cast into hell, to thrown into hell, here we would assume, of course, the final judgment. And that is exactly what is being talked about here. It is judgment. The ultimate destiny of those who never deal with their sin in God's way. Now, there are some verses that are very scary in the New Testament. Let me read these to you. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10 is talking about the manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Notice it calls righteous judgment of God. That you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulations those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And verse 8 is scary. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admitted, uh, admired among all those who are believed because our testimony among you was believed. Those are scary verses. But it's talking about the person who is not willing to give up his sin and obey the gospel of Christ, and he ends up in the flaming fires of hell. You know, people know what it is necessary to avoid hell. Now, there might be some who don't, but they know that repentance from sin is necessary. In Luke 16, talking about the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And you know the story. Father Abraham says, no, they have the word of God, basically, is what he says. Let them hear the prophets. Let them hear the word of God. And, and the rich man says, no, let somebody come back from the dead. Let me go back. Of course, yeah, he wanted to get out of hell. 
Let me go back and tell them. Then they'll repent. And Father Abraham said, nah, if they won't hear the word of God and repent, even if one came to them from the dead, they wouldn't repent either. Revelation 21, verses 7 through 8. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Those verses are scary, but they're talking about people who will one day be cast into hell's fire's flame because they didn't give up their sin. They wouldn't turn to Christ. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, talking about that great day, the great white throne judgment, and I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. To be cast or thrown into hell because someone has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and did not deal with their sin according to God's way, they will perish and be cast into hell. The whole body as compared to one member, and refers to, of course, here, the whole person who is guilty of the sin that they would not forsake. So drastic measures, according to what Jesus is saying, are to occur to avoid our bodies being cast into hell. Now, folks, again, I'm not going to hand out daggers. This is not language that is to be taken literally. If we took this gruesome language literally, we're missing the point. The, uh, the absurdity in these statements is obvious. It was the heart that caused the sin. So getting rid of the sinning members, the eye or the hand, actually do not solve the problem of the sin being committed. In other words, the solution to sexual lust cannot be external because the cause is not external. It is not the hand or the eye that causes the heart to sin. Self-mutilation does not take care of the heart. You can do anything that you want to your body. You will not affect the heart. Will not happen. Plucking out an eye, amputating a hand, does not help us to avoid sin. If that were the case, we would be blind. Because we'd pluck out our right eye, 
And the next day, our left eye would do the same thing. We'd commit a sin with our right hand, and the next day, the left hand would commit that sin. One day, we'd go to the wrong place, so we cut off our right foot. The next day, the left, hand, the left foot would hop there. And we'd be going through life blind and just a torso with no stumps, with nothing but stumps. And then, we'd still lust. So the other thing here that I think we need to see is Jesus is showing us the absurdity of looking at sin in purely an external way. Remember, the scribes and the Pharisees thought righteousness was something that was purely external. As long as you didn't actually commit the, the physical act, outward external act of murder, you're okay. As long as you didn't commit the actual external act of adultery, you were okay. And so it's, it's as if he's saying to those who were priding themselves in this great external righteousness that if they should sin, this is how they should deal with it. Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, and he's showing them that they cannot deal with sin externally. It's an absurdity. what it is showing us. And I think what we need to take from this, it's showing us the drastic measures that we must take to avoid lust in particular and sin in general. At face value, as it were, we must deal drastically with the instruments of sin. So let me make some statements and then move into some, uh, if I get there, some practical application of how to cure a lusting heart. Folks, we have to get to the place where we abhor and hate sin so that we do forsake it and we can root it out and we can destroy it out of our lives. We need to deal drastically with sin. Now, sometimes this will be a painful matter. And I think the verses are teaching us that it sometimes will require loss on our part. Loss on our part. As painful as cutting off a hand or plucking out an eye, uh, with no anesthesia, by the way, the loss of something most dear to us that will affect us the rest of their lives. In other words, we're talking about sometimes to deal with sin, there might be permanent loss in our lives. John MacArthur said, and I quote, We must be willing to give up whatever is necessary, even the most cherished things we possess, if in doing that, it will help protect us from evil, end quote. Nothing is too valuable to give up in order to preserve holiness in our lives. So we should remove or eliminate as soon as possible the things in our lives that offend us, not emotionally, but that cause us to sin. Get it out of your life. 
whatever it is. Anything that is a danger to our souls should be removed and avoided. This is how we deal drastically with sin. Do not treat sin lightly. D.A. Carson said this, and I quote, We must not pamper it, flirt with it, enjoy nibbling a little of it around the edges. We are to hate it, crush it, and dig it out. D.A. Carson. In other places in the Bible, this is called the mortification of the flesh. Colossians 3, 5, and 6, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. The mortification of the flesh. The killing of our flesh. Now, that doesn't happen all at once. It's an ongoing process in our lives of crushing, hating, digging out the things that are sinful or that cause us to sin. Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in its lust. Now, this is giving us something that is positionally true, but has to be worked out practically in our lives. When we died with Christ on the cross, the power of sin over us was canceled. But we're to reckon it to be so, and we were to put it into practice. We're not to let sin therefore reign in our mortal body that we should obey it in its lusts. The only people alive today that have the ability to say no to sin are those who are true believers in Jesus Christ. Sin's power over us has been broken. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourself unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. This is what I would call the replacement theory. Don't yield your members this way. However, yield your members this way. Replacement theory. You're going to take something bad out of your life. You're going to put something good in its place. And I love verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. I like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.27. But I discipline my body. I beat my body into subjection, he says, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. There are going to come times, folks, where we've got to beat our bodies into subjection to root out, crush sin in our lives. Romans 8, 13 and 14. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now this begins to tell us how we can do this. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If by the Spirit, oh, thank God for the Holy Spirit. If by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body. You will live. 
For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And so the question I have for all of us this morning, myself included, and I went through a period where I was really seeking out, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit? You see, the Spirit of God is one of the three members of the triune God, and if you came to Christ, he indwelt you. When that new heart, that new nature came, that came in the person of the Holy Spirit. And now it is up to us not to grieve, not to quench the Holy Spirit, but to walk by means of the Spirit every day of our lives. And when we do that, we can put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, I'm not Pentecostal. I often called myself Bapticostal. But we need to be rightly related to the Spirit of God in our lives. And the more you talk about the Spirit does not make you a Pentecostal. But we need to be led by the Spirit. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to walk by means of the Spirit. And according to Galatians chapter 5, we need to keep in step with the Spirit. There's two words for walk that are used there. But we need to walk by means of the Spirit of God. I'm not talking about you're going to hear voices. Okay? I don't, I don't know how the Spirit of God interacts with us, but I do know that the Holy Spirit has helped me from avoiding sin. I do know that the Holy Spirit has led me and he uses the word of God to do that. And the Holy Spirit applies the grace of God to me in some way that I'm able to apply Romans chapter 6 so that I do not sin. I don't know how all that works. But I do know we need to experience it in our lives. And I do know that we need to be careful for two things. Grieving the Spirit of God. How many have ever apologized to the Spirit of God because you grieved him? I have. And we can't quench the Spirit. You see, the Spirit is grieved when we commit sin in our lives. And when we are attempting to walk in the Spirit so that we can mortify the deeds of the flesh and drastically deal with sin in our lives, if we, if we grieve Him, we don't have His help. Hell is threatened on those who do not deal drastically with sin. Sin leads to hell. And that is why it must be dealt with drastically, repented of, and taken seriously. So in other words, it's better to prepare for eternity than to... Remember Moses... Remember what it says about Moses in Hebrews chapter 11? He would rather suffer with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Now, how do we do that? I'm not yet to the practical section, but there was a time in my life, I'm not proud of it, but there was a time in my life where I was, well, I was really into rock and roll music as a Christian. And I had a man in the church 
Mike, you kind of remind me of him. Godly man, applied the word of God to his life. He took me under his wing. And he found out, I don't know how he found out, I was ashamed. He says, I'll tell you what, Greg, you take all that rock and roll music and you bring it over to my house and we'll talk about it. I had cassettes. I had, this is before CDs, folks. That tells you how old I am. I had cassettes. I had albums. I had spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars on some of these bands and their albums. And when he said, we're going to talk about it, we didn't talk. We went into his backyard, and we had a barbecue. And we burned every album, every tape. And then we talked. <laughs> and he showed me from the Bible how immoral it was for a Christian to be listening to that kind of music. That's dealing drastically with something that will cause you to sin. So how do you deal drastically with this? Now, I'm not saying that any of this is true of anybody in the church. But if somebody is in an immoral relationship, the thing to do is to run from it. Cut it off. Not next week, today. And don't worry about hurting somebody's feelings. If the TV controls you, chuck it out the window. If that's what causes you to sin, get rid of it. Get some accountability. You like reading obscene books or magazines? Burn them. Get rid of those romance novels if they cause you to sin. Internet problems? Pull the plug. Get accountability. Put the computer in a public place where everybody can see what you're doing. Married people having an affair? It's sinful, needs to be severed, need to stop going there. Men, if you are attracted to somebody else, tell your spouse, get it out in the open. Scantily clad woman, look the other way. Cover your eyes. Go the other direction. We must control what is around us, what we watch, where we go, what we do, the company we keep, and so on. And if we cannot control it, and it controls us and causes us to sin, it needs to be cut off out of our lives. That's what music was for me. Now, this is true of any types of sin, not just what this context is talking about, the idea of lust. But we are to take care of the externals. But we have to understand it doesn't change the heart. I could have gotten rid of that music and burned it in the backyard and still gone to the radio and turned to the stations that I wanted to. We have to ask God to create in us a clean heart, a 
heart that is loyal to him, a heart that obeys his word. You know that verse, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. That's not just talking about memorizing God's word. I think that's the start. But the word hid means to treasure. We need to treasure God's word in our hearts. To treasure something means it becomes the most important thing to us ever. To treasure it means it has a special place in our hearts. I had a shirt that I treasured at one time. Now, don't laugh at me, okay? I loved that shirt. It was a gymnastic shirt. It was a beautiful shirt. I kept it even though I couldn't even wear it anymore. It didn't fit because I had it when I was in high school. You know what? That shirt had a special place in my dresser, in my drawer. Nothing went on top of it. It had its own place. Now, ladies, I know you have knickknacks or stuff that you treasure. I'm not saying it's wrong to have the knickknack. I'm trying to get the idea of the word treasure across to you. Recently, I gave my wife for Valentine's Day a a little figurine that says, I love you on it. And she put it in a very prominent place, took something down that was there because she treasured that item. We all have things that we treasure. Think about those things that you treasure. Could be a gun, could be a knickknack, could be a favorite kitchen utensil for all I know. But we have things that we treasure, and we'll do whatever it takes to protect that thing, keep it from being abused or broken or played with. It'll be in a special place, maybe behind a locked glass door, so nobody can touch it. We won't let anybody else dust it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Thy word have I treasured in my heart. God's word has to have a place in our heart such that it affects our behavior. So treasure God's word. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we do ask that as we treasure it in our hearts, we would apply its principles to our lives. And we will be the kind of children that you want us to be. For I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.